Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Sigrid Nunez, the New York Times bestselling author of The Friend, winner of the 2018 National Book Award, and its follow-up, What Are You Going Through?, which has just been published by Virago here in the UK. Sigrid is the author of several other novels, including A Feather on the Breath of God, The Last of Her Kind, and Salvation City, and one volume of memoir, Sempra Susan, a memoir of Susan Sontag. Welcome to our show, Sigrid. It's a huge pleasure to have you here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs> I've just realized that um, in describing your new novel, What Are They Going Through? I said it was a follow-up to The Friend, um, and I'm assuming a sort of connection between the two books that I'm not sure I should be. Um, but there are obviously sort of similarities in some of the themes. Um, but it also struck me that when I was reading um, What Are You Going Through? that I was back in the same narrator's voice that I come across in The Friend. And I don't know, am I reading too much into it or or is there supposed to be a connection between the two books? You're not reading too much into it. The, the truth is that I, I certainly didn't plan uh, for this book to, to greatly resemble The Friend. I wasn't even thinking about that. I was just writing a new book. Uh, but, but it didn't take me long to discover exactly what you said. That, uh, that there was a connection and that the most important connection was that it was the same narrator's voice, that it is the same narrator, I think. So I, I never intended to write a sequel and I wouldn't call it a sequel. So maybe follow up might be a little too, too explicit, but um, these mm-hmm. books are definitely, as you say, connected. And, uh, and surely uh, what are you going through came out of The Friend. Is, there, is it as a narrator's voice that you've come across before in your writing? Again, I don't want to make too many sort of connections, but it sort of, I don't know, it struck me as something similar to your first novel, A Feather on the Breath of God, that um, the very sort of intimate, quiet tone of the narrator's voice. Um, and I wonder if, um, not necessarily that they're exactly the same people, but when you write in a, when you find a particular narrative voice like this, does it remind you of things that you've written in the past? Or do you think of all the books as being um, completely independent entities? Well, again, um, 
uh, you're, you're describing something that, that did in fact happen. When I wrote The Friend, when I finished The Friend, I thought to myself, you know, this really comes out of my first novel, A Feather on the Breath of God, published in 1995, whereas The Friend was published in, in uh, 2018. Um, I recognized, again, without planning it, I recognized um, the similarities in the voice and in the way of seeing the world and the sensibility of the narrator. And I thought, yes, that really is like the same narrator here in The Friend, uh, decades older. So now, but other books that I've written are are far from that, don't fit into this pattern we're talking about. Uh, but, you know, when I think, I've, I, I did write a book uh, a, about a, a woman who served as an army nurse in Vietnam called yes. Ruena, and there, there is a narrator there who's also a writer, and when I think about how she begins the book and then she uh, withdraws from the book so she can tell the story of this nurse's experiences in the war and coming home from the war, uh, I feel that that narrator, that unnamed narrator, uh, who's also a writer, I think she too fits in to this group. So, so there are these four books that I think uh, do share a, a, a narrator, a ca character who is a narrator and a writer who are very s similar. And in some cases, it seems to me this, the same. Mm. Well, that was the other one I was going to ask you about, actually, because, uh, again, the similarities seemed it's the, the voice, the kind of and there's something so um, as a reader, at least, there's something so wonderful to re-encounter a voice which you've enjoyed spending time with before um, and not in that classic way of thinking, yes, this is a sequel. I'm going to kind of, you know, see another um, you know, be able to kind of put uh, their life together as a sort of jigsaw. But just to be back in with that voice again, I think, was um, was very uh, very sort of rewarding as a, as a reader, in, in um, as my experience at least here. Uh, and because if you said that you didn't know, you didn't start writing, you know, the friend, and then maybe um, and what are you going through, recognizing that this was going to be the same narrator that you might have accounted before, the same narrative voice. How did it feel in the moments where you suddenly realized that it was? Is it like meeting an old friend of your own back at, again and thinking, oh, I recognize you, I see you, you're the person. Well, it feels comfortable. I I, um, I I feel like once I recognized that in writing, what are you going through? That was a very good thing because, uh, you know, I was familiar with this narrator character from The Friend and that wasn't that long ago. So I felt that, I felt like I was where where I should be as as the narrator of the book and and I felt that I was going to be able to uh, uh, say what I wanted to say and tell the stories I wanted to tell without how with you know with consistency that was very important to me um, you know that I would be able to I, I didn't have doubts about being able to keep the tone and the voice consistent which is very important in a book like this but that I already knew what that was and I had that. And that was a big part of the, the, the battle of getting a book done. Mm. That strikes me as well, the way you say that um, the, the, the voice, the tone was where you, you felt like you needed to be, where you had to be. Um, and that reminds me a little bit of a wonderful um, line in a recent review you got from Dwight Garner in the New York Times, one of the many kind of rave reviews you've been getting. But he says this kind of very, very, 
almost like a throwaway comment, but to me, it struck me as being very important to your books. He says, when I open one of her, that is your novels, I almost um, always know immediately, this is where I want to be. Um, and not only did it make me feel very similar that he was articulating something which I had failed to put into words, that when I pick up your books, regardless of what the topic is, you know, who your narrator is, I think, oh, this is where I want to be in this moment. This is exactly what I should be reading. But it's so interesting to hear you talk about the writing process in sort of such a similar vein. Well, I think that that has something to do with um, the intimacy of the tone. I mean, I'm not sure, but it might have something to do with the feeling on the part of the reader that I am talking to you. Yes. You know, very, very directly. I'm not talking about you. I have a story to tell. I'm talking about other people and how I feel and how I think and so on. The narrator, I say I, meaning the narrator. But it, there is a, a kind of um, sense of being spoken to uh, as if there were a very close relationship between the writer and the narrator and the reader. Mm. That sort of intimacy as well. It feels very... Um... I think intimate is the exactly right word. I, I feel that it is a personal connection that I'm making in that moment, uh, which is not something that happens. And so many books, I think, strive to achieve that and not all are as successful as you are in the, in the process, I think. Anyway, um, well, now I'd like to talk a little bit about you as a reader, um, Sigrid, rather than uh, the writer. Uh, I've asked you to tell me about um, some books that are currently on your bedside table, assuming that that's the place where there's a pile of books waiting for you. Yes. Um, well, uh, one book that I'm really looking forward to reading is um, Helen MacDonald's new book uh, of essays about the natural world called Vesper Flights. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was a huge fan of H's for Hawk. And, um, you know, I, I was very, you know, when I think about writing The Friend, I think, uh, you know, uh, I, I think of that book. And uh, it, it's, uh, you know, Helen MacDonald was so undone by grief uh, after her father's sudden death. And, I just thought the story was so beautiful and so beautifully told, uh, this healing power of a relationship that she had with the goshawk. Mm. Um, so that was actually very much on my mind when I was working on The Friend. And I, I, you know, I think that she, her belief that animals can teach us uh, many important things, not just about their worlds, but about ourselves, I think that that's a, that that's a that that's true, and that it's a it's a wonderful observation, and also this idea of how much of a comfort to us animals are, and not just mm -hmm. dogs. I mean, mainly dogs, <laughs> but in her case, it was it was the goshawk. So uh, some of those essays have appeared uh, in various places. So I, I've I've read some, but uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that. And then another book. Um, is Natasha Trethewey's memoir, Memorial Drive, uh, which also uh, just came out recently. So I, I have met uh, Natasha Trethewey, uh, who is a poet, a Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, and also our United States Poet Laureate uh, for two years, in 2012 and 2013. 
Um, and she, I, I met her because we, we were both on the faculty at the Breadloaf Writers Conference uh, more than uh. once. Um, and this, um, this memoir uh, is about a very terrible thing that happened to her. She was 19 years old when her stepfather uh, shot and killed her mother in Atlanta. Uh, and so she, she uh, apparently in this book, she talks about how this, her relationship with her mother, of course, and how this violence shaped her poetry and her life. And, and also she talks about uh, being the, 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 the growing up a child of mixed race in the American South, in Mississippi, in fact. Um, so, and she's, she's a wonderful poet. And I, I, I particularly like uh, reading um, the prose of poets. I find it's often it's often very wonderful. I think about the the stories written by uh, the great poet Elizabeth Bishop, for example. Mm. Um, and I once I once tried that. You know, I once tried in one of my literature courses in uh, graduate school to teach a course called um, A Poet's Prose, and I thought it was such a wonderful idea. And I, I had all kinds of works. Um, and it, it didn't go well for some reason. I really don't know why. Uh, you know, I, the students didn't, didn't somehow didn't take to it. So I didn't try that experiment again. But when I came up with it, I, th- I thought it was a, a quite a wonderful idea. Um, yeah, I, I would have thought that would have been a very attractive. It sounds great. <laughs> it sounds great. But then you, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, and then the um, Emily Ruskovich was a writer that I didn't know anything about her. Then she won last year's International Dublin Literary Award. And I've heard so many wonderful things about this book called Idaho. Mm. Um, and it, it sounds like a really good mystery, among other things, if I'm not misrepresenting it. I've, I've heard that it's extraordinarily well written as well. But it's about a, a couple who are living in northern Idaho in a very uh, rugged part of the state. And um, uh, they've been together for a long time. He's losing his memory. And she's trying to find, find out the truth about what really happened to his first wife, who's actually in prison, and their, and their daughters. So, um, And then another book that really fascinates me, but that I, that I worry, I worry that, that it might be over my head, to be honest, is this X plus Y, a mathematician's manifesto for rethinking gender by Eugenia Cheng, who is a mathematician and also a concert pianist. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I quite understand it, but uh, apparently she uses uh, insights of mathematics to, to, to suggest a new way to talk about human character traits without reference to gender, so that you know a, a, a new way of a way of reframing our accepted perspective, uh, you know it, that biology is 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 the way to talk about gender difference. Um, you know, in her view, that it doesn't have to be that way. That's a bias. Um, so, as somebody who's really bad at math. This could be challenging, but my understanding is that she's an expert at, at making mathematical ideas clear to people like me. So I, I, I will certainly give it a try. And then I wanted to add one that I, that's just come actually to me uh, called The High House 
by Jesse Greengrass. And this is a book coming out in the UK in April, I believe. And I'm really looking forward to this novel because I read a site a couple of years ago. Um, she had written a book of stories, but Sight was her first novel. It's a, kind of a hybrid work. Mm. Um, and I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, again, it's a, it's, it's a book about grief, one thing. Um, her being completely undone by the death of her mother. And also uh, a kind of obsessive exploration about should I have a child and why is it so difficult for me to make this decision, though you know from the very beginning of the book that she did indeed decide to have a child because that's on the first page. Um, but she also interlines that personal story with, uh, with a lot of uh, essayistic science writing that I found absolutely fascinating and that was completely uh, uh, appropriate to the other story that she was telling. It wasn't, it wasn't like some kind of filler. So I admire her a lot. So I'm very happy that this was sent to me. Um, so those, so those are some things. Perfect. I'm wondering, I don't know if this is quite a broad observation to make, but it strikes me that some of the, um, or a fair amount of the books you've just described sort of speak to, um, your own writerly interests, if I can put it that way. Um, whether it's sort of in grief or a particular kind of voice. I, w I wonder if you find, do you find that your own writing informs what you read or do you try and keep a sort of um, bit of a separation between the two? Uh, I don't actually try anything, but I certainly would, you know, I, one, one way or the other, I, I, I think I'm kind of reading whatever it is that I want to read. Uh, and, you know, I would certainly prefer that I could be, you know, as broad as possible, but I suppose just as you noticed, um, you know, there are these these uh, particular concerns uh, that I have that I think you know clearly are coming out in in what I'm in what I'm you know putting on that nightstand. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. One of the sort of big pleasures for me, at least, of reading both The Friend and What Are You Going To, going through, are the sort of intertextual pleasures, the way that the narrator incorporates books that she's read, stories that she's heard. Um, and it seems so sort of organic and natural in the, um, in, in the novels that, that we read. Um, I just wondered whether it was something that you're aware of doing that you think, oh, that'll slot into the story here. Or do you think about do you think in advance I want to talk about these things, these sort of subjects, or do you find in the writing process that you suddenly realise that you want to mention a reference from, you know, a novel you read ten years ago or something like that? Oh, it's definitely the latter because um, one of the one of the things I like about having a narrator who's a reader and a writer is that um, it's convincing uh, that uh, that she would quote other writers yes um, so what I do is I'm moving along with my story uh I'm not planning anything ahead or or um even remembering um and then moving towards that memory of something that I read I just I come to a certain place and then I think oh yes for example that reminds me of how so-and-so said or wrote and then I'm able to put it in there and what very often happens is that once I, I put that in there, that leads to another thought um, 
which could perhaps be something else that that I read that that or or even a film that I saw or something that I heard. Um, so I would I would I, I I would always it would always be something that came in the process of of writing, and that's what I like about it because it it feels it feels very natural because it has actually happened to me while I'm writing and thinking, um, and um, I think that. It, it helps give that that intimate tone that we talked about before, like something mm. that's happening in the moment, like a, like a conversation that I'm having with the reader. Yes, well, that's the thing. It feels like a kind of everything about when you read it. It feels very organic. It feels that it's a natural um, the way of the way that you know our own. We're used to our own thoughts um, zinging off one another and thinking about something we read a while ago or making the connections. Um, so it seems so organic in the process and, and very admirable as well. Um, so the second question I want to ask you is about a recent article that's made you think, um, about something in particular. Well, I found it helpful during lockdown and these rolling crises, uh, that uh, that we're living through um it's been a pleasure to me and a, a a comfort to read about creatures or about the natural world and so i had discovered these um little pieces they're usually not more than a thousand words by Catherine rundell in the london review of books where she considers some creature and there was um a wombat a narwhal a hermit crab a hedgehog a hare, swifts, um, the pangolin, the golden mole, I th- I th- and lemurs. I think that's. I think that might be all of them so far. And so the pieces are consider the creature, and um, these are very beautiful pieces. I mean, they're very poetical, uh, and they're full of extremely in- interesting information that 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 uh, you know that I've never seen before. For example, she starts out the. Um, the one about the hermit crab, that, saying that it's possible that a hermit crab ate Amelia Earhart, because there are these <laughs> giant. I mean, this is a wonderful way to start the little piece, uh, because there there are these giant uh, coconut hermit crabs on the on the island where uh, where where she went down, um, with these with jaws that are capable of of, of breaking a coconut. Um, apparently, oh this has been tested. This yes. Uh, who would think? Um, but there's a lot of humor in them. There's a lot of lightness. Um, and she always, she gives, um, she has wonderful descriptions. For example, when she's talking about the, the hedgehog, she describes the face as that distinctive look of polite, gracious inquisitiveness. Now, online, you have the photographs, color photographs of these various animals, which are also a treat. Um and she, um, she she always includes a history of the animal, uh, you know, that what, what and the and the various myths that have been believed about about the animal over time. So anyway, it's they're great fun and they're really beautiful. And 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 her language is very very precise. Um, so that's a treat. It isn't really such an escape from from the harsh reality of, of, of the world because she always I mean the really sad thing is that every one of these animals as, as I can recall uh is is endangered 
And she, you know, she always goes into that, what is it that is endangering them? What is it that is uh, uh, ruining their habitat? So there's always this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's always this acknowledgement and, and, and always on the part of the reader having to, having to face, you know, as a human being, the complicity in the, in the harm that we're doing these animals that she has just written so beautifully about. But I, I do, I do, um, I, I do greatly appreciate the writing of these pieces, and, I, and I'm very, really looking forward to them. I've read a couple of them, probably not quite as many as you, and I've noticed that they are—they sort of both take you out of the world in as much as she is showing you something that, well, for me at least, she's sort of um, introducing me to an animal that I sort of know you know, what it looks like. I know a little bit about it, but then she tells me this sort of whole other story about how, sometimes about how it exists, but also the way that we have, um, or humans have a relationship with it, what it might mean in terms of mythology or how we've come to view some of these animals. Um, and I was sort of, I, when, once you picked them, I was wondering about what is it that makes for good writing about animals? Because you've done it yourself so wonderfully. I mean, not just in The Friend, where you've got your wonderful um, Apollo, the, the Great Dane that your narrator has to look after. And that is such a beautiful friendship um, that you sort of render on the page, you know, between woman and dog. But also in your earlier book, Myths, um, about Leonard Wolfe's pet marmoset, which is such a such a wonderful sort of story that you told, such a brilliant, I mean, it's, you know, it's inspired that somebody would want to write that story um but clearly there was there was sort of an attraction there and what there's something about animals which obviously you're quite drawn to yes i think um i mean i think first of all uh you have to have a, a love of them uh which so many people have and then you have to find them fascinating you have to find animal mm. behavior really fascinating and then you have to be willing uh, just to, I mean, there are people who say this is very bad. You know, anthropomorphizing is, is not a good thing. But um, you do need to, I think, see personalities in the animals. I mean, when she talks about the hedgehog's look of inquisitiveness, mm. you know, that's a that's a animals can be so, but we think of, uh, uh, but the. That we understand is something, yes, animals are curious, inquisitive, we've seen that. But the other two adjectives, polite, gracious, uh, these are, these are we think of these as human traits. I think you have to be yes. willing to use your imagination to see a kind of humanity in the, in the animal world. Uh, you know, um, it, 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 it's not it, it's it's not the way a, a scientist would look at it, I suppose. But but I think that that's really it. And I do I do have that. I I'm absolutely fascinated by by animals and animal behavior. And I I like the look of them too. I I like I like looking at them. I like uh, I like observing the way they go about their 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 animal business. Some people are bored by that, but I think most people aren't. I think most people really enjoy watching animals when they have the opportunity. Mm, mm. Yeah, I think because there seems to be two, there's obviously sort of always this this kind of um, line when people are writing about animals. Are you writing about a human's relationship with an animal or are you writing about the animal in its own sort of right? And of course, there is always that urge to um 
sort of impose human characteristics, particularly when somebody, whether it's, you know, um, in real life, or whether it's a character in a book, feels a, a sort of strong relationship with an animal. Um, I think I I find myself, because I wouldn't really count myself a particularly animal I'm not really an animal person. I'm not a huge fan of having pets, but I find reading about animals incredibly fascinating, maybe because it shows me, it, it sort of lets me into a world that I'm not that comfortable with in real life. I don't know what it is exactly. But I never thought something like The Friend would be a particularly interesting um, book, but actually you know, everything about Tulip in it, and, uh, sorry, well, obviously Tulip as well, the um, J.R. Akeley, that sent me wanting to read that book as much as want to read about Apollo. So there's something there. I think animals are really fascinating. Well, but there is one other thing that, I, that I, I'd say, which is that um, although I do have a cat, who uh, speaks for itself in uh, in what are you going through? I was very um, very conflicted about that because much as I love <laughs> animals, love reading about animals, love writing about animals, observing them, I've never been a fan of the first person animal. I, I you know right. I don't I don't um, I don't like it when when there are stories about an animal and they have the the you know Mrs. Beaver she's wearing an apron and she's making tea and she's and her 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 family is around the table and the the, the uh Mr. Beaver has a has overalls on he's going to work because i don't feel that that's those are humans that's that's mm. you know they animals don't speak don't animals don't speak english they don't they don't write books they don't have a human life they don't wear overalls all those things so you would think that i would as an animal as a child yes I could love that, but but I I really, I, to me, it's, you're not really writing about the animal. You're, you're you're writing about people in animal costumes, and this is not mm. so interesting to me. Yeah, what, when you went back and forth about writing the, I mean, I think the cat um, the cat section in in what are you going through really works. It's sort of. It, it's it's strange, but it also makes perfect sense within the world that you've created in the book, which is sort of odd in one sense. But did you go back? You obviously went back and forth about whether to include it or not. Well, the um, yes, I, I, I again, like everything I write, it happens to me in the process. So at this point, I have a narrator who's very sleepy. She's in bed. She's reading her mystery. She's about to go to sleep. And the cat comes into the room. She, it's not her cat. She's at an Airbnb. And the cat jumps on the bed, and that's, that's very nice. She's very happy with that. Uh, and then the, the cat has a story to tell, like so many other people, like so many people in, in the <laughs> But, I, but I, I do suggest that, that my narrator is falling asleep. You don't really know mm. <laughs> whether the cat was speaking or... Or she's had this dream because at the end she says, the cat told many other stories that night, but this is the only one I remembered when I woke up. Uh, so I didn't know whether it was a dream or, or the cat was real. Now, when I have said this to readers, they are almost indignant that I would suggest that it was just a dream. Uh, people, <laughs> readers, readers insist that it was real and that the cat was speaking. So I guess that must be it. And I, I did, as I say, uh, you know, I did wonder if this worked, this part about the cat. And I thought, well, if it doesn't, my editor is going to tell me that. 
my editor is going to gently suggest I would cut the cat. Um, but in <laughs> fact, <laughs> the editor and everyone else uh, is is so taken with the cat. The cat uh, the cat turns out to be something of a scene stealer. So I'm glad I'm glad it's there. <laughs> this is a very memorable part of the of the novel, and I think works particularly well. Um, so moving on to something a little bit different, perhaps, um, could you tell me about a uh, song? I think you're going to tell me about some songs that you've been listening to a lot lately. Well, I, I guess I mean a couple of weeks ago, I guess I read uh, that there was a, a new biography of uh, the the singer Odetta. Um, and I remembered listening to Odetta's music in the '60s, um, but I hadn't listened to listened to it for a really long time. So I I've been listening. I've been you know go looking for things on YouTube. Um, now Odetta is somebody who um, who was classically trained, and I I have tried to find some you know, her singing German leader, but I haven't been successful at that. But she did actually turn to um, folk music i mean she she could she could sing sing anything so she sang folk music spirituals blues uh she sang a lot of dylan um some some of the songs that 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 uh that i've listened to over and over uh, sometimes i feel like a motherless child uh, all my trials mm-hmm. careless love these various dylan songs um she's just a, an amazing it's an amazing voice i mean it's just it's just it's just an, an enormous and an extraordinarily beautiful voice, and she, and her her musicality is just stunning. Uh, and she was she was a a, a hero to uh, the folk the folk music movement. Um, and there's one there's one uh, um, there's one concert that she where, where she's doing a blues improv with Joan Baez. And it begins with Joan Baez singing, and then she appears, and they they have the arms around each other, and in her I guess her right hand she has a cigarette. I'm so fixated on the cigarette. She comes out to sing with a cigarette, and she's moving and swaying with Joan Baez, and and her hand is there with the cigarette. Um, so and that was a wonderful thing to listen to. And her life, you know, she uh, actually she she was she was born in 1930, and she. Um, she sang, she's born in Birmingham and she is, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And she is, uh, you know, somebody that I also associate with the civil rights movement. She was, she mm. sang, uh, at the March, uh, the same March where, that Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, made his, I have a dream speech. And she was supposed to sing it at Obama's inauguration. I believe, and she died right before. Oh, so um, yeah. So it's 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 been it's been wonderful listening to these. I couldn't work out it. I was wondering because I think I'd I'd heard somebody else talking about the um, the biography recently, so I was slightly aware of who she was. But I must admit that I wasn't um, particularly familiar with her with her or her songs before um before that and I couldn't work out if that was because I'm my musical knowledge is pretty poor at the best of times or whether she's just not quite so well known in the here in the UK um but what I've listened to is is absolutely wonderful and sort of she sounds like an absolutely fascinating character as well an incredible sort of life and at the forefront of these very political movements as as much as the kind of musical um side of things as well 
Well, and I think she hasn't been, um, she hasn't been getting very much attention in, in, in uh, recent years, I think. Uh, but I think there was a period of time where she took off. I seem to remember somewhere, I mean, took, took off from singing in, in one of these where it said uh, her first concert after a silence of 10 years or something. So, I mean, I, so she has to be tired of that. But, um, but it would be great if, um, if, uh, if this biography, um, I think there are actually two books about her out right now. Um, and it, I think it would be, it would be great if, if, if people would start to rediscover her because I mean, there was a time when, yeah. you know, that, you know, that's why the one name, you know, she did have a surname. It was Holmes. Uh, I mean, everybody knew who Odetta was. Yeah. I also, um, I wonder, are you finding at the moment as well that, um, is it not that strange to be listening to music in your apartment rather than out and about? Are you finding obviously things much more curtailed and having to do a lot more cultural, um, sort of, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, but, you know, sort of, uh, devour your cultural content at home rather than out and about at the moment. It's hard. I mean, particularly because so much come, so much is, you know, this little little laptop. I mean, it's like the whole universe. Everything you do is little, except for cook is the the laptop. Um, yeah, I uh, right before lockdown, I I, uh, I I was at a concert at Carnegie Hall, and I I often think how long, how long before. Uh, before I, I would be doing that again. Before, I mean, mm. the Metropolitan Opera House has just canceled uh, its entire year next year. Yes, I saw that. That's so that's kind of shocking. Of, yeah. I mean, I understand why, but it's a such a blow to the arts, right? Yeah, and um, and I, I I think Carnegie Hall will have to do the same in other places, and so there's that that particular kind of um, uh, cultural event is gone museums aren't there you can do that but and of course you can read but i do really miss uh concerts even more though uh not being able to go to the movies that's mm. even even more of a uh, of a loss at the moment and not knowing when that uh will, will come back because that's a completely different thing from watching movies at home completely different because you know that's what I want to do is go to the film forum and be with other people in the dark and watch the movie I don't I don't want to sit here watching Netflix I know it's not quite the same feeling is it I mean there are certain things you can still watch but that um that idea of escaping from it all of sort of taking time out of your day to go and sit in a dark movie theater and be transported it's never going to work in your own home in quite the same way so regardless of how big your screen is or anything like that so ah, oh, well it's a shame we're all missing um these things i think our shells will be back in just a moment Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Sigrid Nunez about the uh, the loss of cinema at the moment. We're both missing being able to go and see things on the big screen, unfortunately. Um, so sticking with the visual image for the time being, the next question we've asked is um, for you to pick a photograph that you treasure. Uh, and I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about it, please, Sigrid. Well, I have here... This my photograph is is from a book, and the 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 book is called Author Photo, and these are portraits by the photographer Marion Etlinger uh, from nineteen eighty three to two thousand and two, and Marion Etlinger only does author photos. That is her great subject. So in nineteen eighty three, she did a portrait of Elizabeth Hardwick, who is oh wow. Who, who was yeah, in New York City in her apartment. And Elizabeth Hardwick was, among other things, the first professional writer I ever met. Yeah, in this photograph, it's like she, she's, she's looking very pensive. She's, she's uh, looking, looking down, leaning her, 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 her chin on her hand and her, her elbow on the side of her couch. Um, and she, um, okay, so I... I met her when I was a student at Barnard College, and she was teaching the fiction workshops there, and I took two fiction workshops with her. But this was, you know, very important because um, I had thought that I was a poet, or that I was going to be a poet, I should say. And that's how I, I, I identified myself as a writer. So my first semester at Barnard, I took a poetry workshop, which was uh, – which was a disaster. There's just no other way to put it. I'll tell you how much of a disaster it was. It was such a disaster that, and I'm not joking, I never wrote a poem again. I never. Really? I would, I would not have dared. I would not, I would not have dared. 
um, it was a terrible experience. It was a frightening experience. One of the reasons was that in this workshop, the teacher thought it was a good idea for all of the manuscripts that were submitted uh, to be talked about by fellow students be anonymous. So no okay. one had to own <laughs> what they were saying. And it just so happens that everyone from the teacher to every student hated, mocked, destroyed whatever poem I wrote anonymously, oh, no. not the teacher. <laughs> So that's why. So I, I could have quit writing completely at that point. As I say, I never, to this day, I have never written another poem. Then I moved on and I took Elizabeth Hardwick's two uh, fiction workshops, and she was extremely, uh, she, she was extremely tough too. Uh, but she was very, very important to me. And as I say, she was the first professional writer that I ever met, um, and. So by the time this photograph was taken in 1983, uh, I, I was out of school, of course, but I also, um, she had written her novel Sleepless Nights, which came out into, in mm. 1979, and she also had written her, uh, had her well, there had been collected her wonderful essays on women and literature called Seduction and Betrayal. And in fact, it was her writing that was the big influence on me. I, she, she was not a great writing teacher. She, 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 there was a part of her that didn't really believe that it could even be done. And this just so happened when I was studying with her, it happened to have been an extremely traumatic uh, period in her own life. Um, mm. So, but, you know, it was from there that I ended up working at the New York Review of Books after I graduated. And I stayed in touch with her uh, for years. And so she was always a, a, an important influence. And she was always... Uh, extremely critical, um, extremely critical. And in, in fact, uh, my relationship with her was, was very complicated because among other things, I would show her something and she would read a book of mine and, uh, and she wouldn't say anything about it, but then I would hear from other people that she had liked it or admired it, but she wouldn't say that to me. So it was very, That's very, was strange. very complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and she would also, another interesting thing um, was that she, 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 was, she was very concerned about, uh, you know, that I was likely to find unhappiness as, as a writer, as in her view, so, so many people, particularly women, do. And so she was always trying to, uh, you know, encourage the other, the other side of life. So, uh, so she, she was always asking me about, about, uh, about whatever boyfriend I had. And so um, as the years passed, instead of asking me, how's the writing coming? She, she would always say, do you still have that nice young man? And that <laughs> night, so what happened then was I broke up with that nice young man and I kept telling her that I still had him because I didn't want to hear her, her harsh, well, how did she put it when I would break up with somebody? Oh, don't tell me that you've lost another one, she would say. So I kept lying to her and then she found out and then she, she wasn't so harsh, but I, I just didn't, you know, I just didn't want her to know that I had lost another one. So anyway, uh, I want to say about these, the, the, the photographs. Okay. Also in this book, um, I met 
I met Marion Ettlinger around 1995, and mm. um, okay, and and she then took a, a photograph of me, which is actually my that's lovely. favorite. Yeah, she took this for the hardcover edition of of Knits, and it is it remains my. Although she's done other uh, photographs of me, but this one remains my favorite uh, photograph of me forever. And then, of course, on the back here, so it's really three photographs. This is beautiful Marion. <laughs> this is beautiful Marion herself. So um, anyway, this book is full of extraordinary photographs, and um, I. Um, it, it, you know, when I was going about my life, becoming a writer, continuing as a writer, it, you know, I would often think that I never imagined that I would be one of her subjects and that I would end up in a book of photos along with Elizabeth Hardwick. So, so these photographs have, have, have a lot of meaning and resonance for me. Yes, of course. I'm so, I'm, I'm very interested to hear you talk more about, um, Hardwick and and your relationship with her as well and the sort of influence because you do mention her briefly in um your memoir about Susan Sontag and for me reading that I've always thought of them as these kind of you know obviously she doesn't get as much um screen time as it were as Sontag but she's this other sort of like two poles they're obviously these incredibly brilliant women very different in their way of living and writing but they clearly both had a sort of effect on you and so hearing about Hardwick a little bit more is is particularly interesting I find it um I find it sort of fascinating that that she wouldn't tell you what she thought about your work did you ever confront her about that and sort of say read this and and let me know what you think about it or did you just let it slide and and let yourself find out through what other people told you well, when I, in the beginning, when I was her student, and I would go to her office to, and 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 actually, uh, when I was a graduate student right across the street at Columbia, I would still go see her at Barnard and and uh, show her my work. And there she was, you know, like the workshop teacher. Uh, there mm. she would look at the work and talk about it. There's a, it none of it was published, um, and. Um, and she was extremely harsh. I mean, there was, for example, uh, okay, so I was still a student, a graduate student, but I was a student, an unpublished student. And there was a time when she 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 would get very impatient with the work. The work was bad. She very very annoyed. She'd become very annoyed. And so uh, she said, um, do you know what I see in your work? I see the mark of the amateur on every page. Now, remember, I was still a student, wow. right? But she's so impatient. And um, or to another uh, student that she had, she uh, she had said, I would rather shoot myself than read that again. She's also very funny, I have to say. Um, you know, she said things to students that you would, that you would never, no one would ever, ever say now, but then, you know, as time went on and I, and I would publish books, those she wouldn't, she, she wouldn't, uh, no, she usually wouldn't, she might say something, but she wouldn't say a lot. And she certainly wouldn't, she certainly wouldn't praise, I mean, very much. And, but I would hear from other people. Um, and then a, a very telling thing, um, she said to me, oh, I saw your friend, and she mentioned this person and she said, um, and I said to him, you know, I'm, I'm still so, I'm so mean to Sigrid. She called me Sigrid. I'm so mean to Sigrid. 
but you know, she's just such a nice person. She just, she, she, she still wants to see me. She's still, she's still willing to be my friend. And apparently he said to her, well, that's because she's serious. Um, so she was, <laughs> she was, she was, she was aware of it, but you know, it's just, it's just the way she was. I mean, she was a much more, she was quite a bit older than Susan Sontag and she was much more conventional than, uh, than Sontag about, about life. And she really, she really did not think that a person should be alone, particularly a woman. And, and so that, that was an important part of things for her. And, uh, and for example, I'm not sure if I, I probably do mention it in, in Semper Susan, um, you know, where there was a, a moment with, one of those boyfriends, I guess, before I lost him or whatever, where I, I told her that, that I was thinking of having a, a child. And I remember so distinctly, she, she was very happy with that. And she said, now that's one decision you'll never regret. And that, wow. that, that stayed with me my whole life because, because what I felt was be, behind it, you know what I mean? as opposed to this crazy idea you have about writing <laughs> and being a professional yeah. writer. Do you know what I mean? It was like, and it certainly wasn't personal. I didn't think, oh, she's, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it's about Sigrid. That's, you know, you'll never regret. She meant, she meant uh, as a woman, as a, as, a, as, a, as a person. But she wouldn't have said that to a man. No. I don't, I don't think. Well, that could be very wrong. strange. I don't think she would have said that to a man. But yeah, and of course, Susan Sontag was the opposite of that. You know, she was all for you put the work first. The work works in for whatever else happens. The work is the most serious thing. You put everything there, whatever else. Um, you can have ten children if you want, but you know, this is this is this is this is what you want to do, and 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 you should take it as seriously as you possibly can, or you'll or you'll never produce anything uh, worthwhile. And of course. What I loved about both of these women was how serious they were and, mm. and the work that they did. I mean, Elizabeth Hardwick's uh, writing is extraordinarily good. And Sleepless Nights was a book that had, you know, a, a tremendous influence on my own writing. Yeah. Do you think you have, I mean, would you say, looking back on your career thus far, have you taken it incredibly seriously? Have you always put the work first? Has it been the sort of guiding light of your life? I have. I have, and it, and it, and it's what I what I wanted to do, you know. I, mm. uh, you know, as 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 I've said, I, I'm I'm one of those people, the opposite of Susan Sontag, uh, who's always only wanted to do one thing well. That that's my temperament. That's, you know, I I one of the reasons why Susan Sontag's life was hard. Was because she had so many interests. There were she. There were so many things she wanted to do besides write, and she was always feeling guilty about that. Um, and and I've known other people like that. Uh, but I, you know, I I uh, you know I had. I mean, there was a period of time when I was very young where I wanted to be a ballet dancer, but that was a fantasy. That was not going to happen anyway. Um, so you could say that that my whole life, I, this is. The one thing I've wanted to do, I've wanted to do it really well. I've wanted everything else to be uh, secondary to it. Mm. It's really, I, I, I find that, um, I find that very heartening to hear, I think, and um, 
comforting as well on a certain level that one can devote oneself to doing something and doing it well for such a long time and also get so much um, happiness out of it and, and sort of pleasure in the writing process and, and being able to do that um, and sort of the dedication, which I think sometimes I feel that we live in a world where there's so much um particularly in the publishing world these days, there's so much emphasis given to sort of this crazy new talent or this person writing this novel. And then, you know, the debut comes out and they sort of get, they drop off the radar for whatever reason, you know, maybe it's not a long, but the sort of longevity of a writing career, somebody who just sort of sits down, puts the work in and develops something over years and years is a, is a sort of, um, I don't know, we're not so used to it anymore. I mean, it's harder to do. It's harder to earn money doing that as well, obviously. Um, but it's a sort of, it's a strange way of thinking about things, I think, sometimes now. Uh, also, I think just going back briefly, can I just ask, because obviously you do quite a lot of teaching yourself these days, don't you? Um, uh, and I just wondered whether, has you, did your relationship that you had with Hardwick or any particular tutor back in, you know, when you were studying, um, has it affected the way that you've taught over the years yourself? Well, it, it has it has very much. I mean, I've actually done a lot less teaching than it might seem uh, because I've never really had a, a teaching job. It's, a, it's true that there was a period right. in my life not that long ago where I was doing quite a bit of it. I was taking whatever people were offering. I was I was uh, I was taking it on to see just how much I could do and still write. But early on, I kept <laughs> the teaching to an absolute minimum because that, too, I wanted to be absolutely uh, not I wanted to not to interfere with my with my writing, uh, but yes, here's what here's what I, I I always kept in mind: the damage that was done to me in that poetry class, the fact that what happened there, which again was not personal. Nobody said let's get Sigrid or let's end Sigrid's wish dream to be a writer. It just was allowed to happen. So I, I had to keep in mind that you can discourage somebody badly enough to stop them from writing at a time when they are so young, you know, it's, there's, there's no reason to, to be discouraging anybody. Mm. Um, so there was that. And then also, also um, you know, certain, certain uh, ways of being critical. Oh, uh, another famous Elizabeth Hardwick remark was, I tried to read your story. I really wanted to but I just couldn't finish it it was just so boring um you know these things that she would say all the time um uh so yeah yes you you, you don't want to want to be like that on the other hand I feel incredibly lucky that I had these people like Sontag and Hardwick who were not just going to praise and who were not who were who, who were going to be honest and who were going to say mm. you want to do this this is really serious. I, this is not about your ego. It's not about your self-esteem. In fact, it's not about you at all. You know, it's about the work. Mm -hmm. And this, this is this, this will not do. Um, because now, of course, there's a tendency. There, there simply is. I see it everywhere to coddle and flatter the the the, the student writer. And and the thing is, the 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 um, the students themselves, as you later find out are grateful if you are hard on them if you if they they respond very well you know sometimes it's the departments that think they have to be a, a, a certain a certain way um the students themselves i find are are, are 
can be ta- they it, 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 they can be taken aback sometimes because they're they're not used to it. But in mm-hmm. the end, they really appreciate that you take the time and effort to go over and over it and and to pick at everything and to say things like you know you have to you have to interrogate every sentence or all, all, all these things. So I'm glad that I had these these harder than usual mentors. Um, I'm sure mm. it helped my. I, I mean, how could it not? How could it not have helped my work? Any student who is serious about their writing would want that the sort of constructive criticism that's necessary. They'd want to kind of take on board and learn from it. Um, you know, nobody does a course like that in order to just have praise heaped on them. Because why would you be there in the first place if your writing was? you know at that stage right so yeah it's a different way of um different way of being i think um sort of i suppose this is on a slightly similar track the next question i wanted to ask you is um what's the novel that you always recommend to friends i feel like this is a tricky question because often people come back to us and say you know why is it a novel or only one novel uh, but if you had to choose one novel is there a particular one that you would recommend to people well, I actually would choose two, but that really the number one one would be Middlemarch. Um, for for a few reasons. One, because uh, if you really want to know what the novel can do, mm. uh, there that it's not that it's the only novel that you could choose for that. But I mean, here is this. I mean, here is this masterpiece that. That is a, a, a love story. It's a, it's a study of provincial life, as, as her subtitle tells us. It's a story about um, the way about uh, the manners of a certain society in a certain time. Uh, it's but it's also a, a, a philosophical novel. This is the most important thing. And again, it's not the only novel like this, but uh, but it's 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 a novel that that it, it's perhaps its main purpose is to explore it's a philosophical novel in the sense that its purpose is to explore how a person should live and in particular uh the dilemma you know in a woman's life uh you know how a woman should live in a society that that doesn't allow a woman the freedom to live that 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 it, it gives to men so um so I that 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 I I, I just I just I, it, in a way okay her her novel is like a, what you can move into it and live there for a while okay that's also mm-hmm. why I think it's so wonderful and um, that's yeah, a wonderful dis- meaning, way of describing it actually move into it and live there for a while and you want to and it's a wonderful place to be but i have there are two yeah. reasons why um two other reasons why it's it's uh, special to me um there's a, in there's a prelude as you know there's a famous prelude to 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 middle march and and she, she she's talking about um uh saint teresa of avila and how when she was a little girl she set out uh with her little brother because she had a fantasy about going on a religious pilgrimage, and then of mm. course she she uh, she grew up to be a great uh, uh, religious reformer, a a, 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 a writer, um, a, a, was canonized, um, and in the second paragraph of that prelude, now I had already written 
I no, I already have the title of my novel, The Last of Her Kind. I already had the title. Mm. And then something sent me to the bookshelf. I mean, I took down Middlemarch and turned to this. That Spanish woman who lived 300 years ago was certainly not the last of her kind. And I, and I thought, isn't that, isn't that wonderful that I found? And then she goes on to say, many Teresas have been born who found for themselves no epic life wherein there was a constant unfolding of far resonant action, perhaps only a life of mistakes, the offspring of a certain spiritual grandeur ill-matched with the meanness of opportunity, perhaps a tragic failure which found no sacred poet and sank unwept into oblivion. So she's talking about how St. Teresa, who was a woman, was able to find you know, an epic scope for her ambitions in religion. But the story that she's going to tell of Dorothea and other women, um, you know, they were her kind, they could have been her kind too, but they were not going to, but you know, that, that word, they, they were not going to have the, the opportunity and that it is a, would be a tragedy. Now we know that Middlemarch does not end tragically, but, um, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's before uh, Virginia Woolf's time, it's, it's her way of saying, if Shakespeare had a sister, she would have ended up drowned, right? I mean, so uh, there's that. And then also, I, um, uh, Middlemarch is a book that I read in, the, uh, in a, 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 um, uh, the English novel course as, as an undergraduate. But uh, sometime later, with, with another one of those boyfriends that I lost along the way. <laughs> we were living together and he was a visual artist and uh, he would, uh, I was still in graduate school, but he had a day job and at night he would paint and I would read out loud to him and we began with the middle March. And so this is a book oh, I wow. have read out loud. <laughs> I read out loud every page it didn't even take as long as you might think, but every evening we we um, we did this, and it was just a wonderful experience. And so, but so there's so I would always pick Middle March as number one, but I would also say um, Proust um, because um, you know, particularly because of all the the interest in in auto fiction now. His name for some reason doesn't mm. doesn't come up. Right, but you know the yes, you're right. Novel, it doesn't, does it? Right, a hundred years ago. I mean, think about um, in search of lost time. And what is it? Is it's it's more nonfiction than fiction. It's called a novel. It's always been called a novel. Nobody disputes that it's yeah. a novel. Um, it's a first person narrative. It's essayistic. It's auto fiction. That's what that's what it is. Um, so I've anyway, never I thought just, of that yeah. before. And of course, it's again talk about moving in and living for a while. Uh, that's another one. So they've been completely different uh, novels, and they're you know if you look at them as two poles of what what the novel can do, they're both full of ideas, full of characters, mm. full of stories, romance, all kinds of everything you could want. Uh, but they but they are you know they're like 
they're both novels, but they, they're completely different genres in, in, in many ways, clearly. So, but I, 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 I love them both. Well, they're perfect recommendations. You're making me want to go back and reread Middlemarch, which I haven't, um, I haven't done for a while. And it might be, I suppose, a sort of going into what's almost a second lockdown might be a really good time to do that. So the next question I'm going to ask you, um, Sigrid, is some more record. Well, I suppose sort of recommendations if people want to go and expand their um, their reading. But I want to hear about um, a book or, or books that made you think about feminism in a new way. And I think you've got two titles you're going to tell me about. Well, I um, I thought first of all of the Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, and I also thought of a, a Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf because I because I I think of them as a pair in relation to what what I uh, what made me think of them to begin with that wasn't very clear. But um, my point is that I read the Second Sex at a time when I really needed. Uh, an antidote to a, a, a kind of criticism of, uh, of feminist writing that was coming from all kinds of people, but including from women, from women that I really admired. And um, the, the complaints were that, the, that feminist writing was anti-intellectual, simple-minded, sentimental, man-hating, of course, humorless, um, basically bad victim lit, though that wasn't the phrase that was used, ignorant of human history, very important, and ruined by uh, rancor and self-pity. Um, and the thing about the second sex, I mean, first of all, is that she, you know, she's, the, she's not, a, she doesn't apologize in any way for her, for her vast learning. Um, but also that you know, because it is because she because she does so much in that book. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a whole a whole history of women, and it's all. I mean, and and she 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 talks about everything. She goes everywhere, and uh, you know, she she. Um, I, I don't see how you could it's not man hating in any way. Not, I mean, perhaps mm. humorous, but I don't think that really really applies in this case. But, it's not really it's supposed to be comedy. It's <laughs> not really exactly. Um, so the intellectual rigor of that book and the and the the breadth of knowledge and the way she's able to uh, you know uh, to to cover everything well while not if she presents the complexity of the whole issue of feminism I hadn't seen that before not in that way uh, she and she doesn't try to simplify any of it or try to talk down to the reader I mean her goal is to show precisely how complex the business is. And, and, and how deep and rooted the oppression of women has been. And then something that she, that I really don't think I had thought of before, though I, I, I should have, because certainly other, other, other women, other feminists, other writers have, had, had brought this up, but she's very good on, um, on women artists. And uh, mm. I guess this is the part that was very significant for me because it's something I ha hadn't realized about myself and that I think is really important, um, that the problem that women have about wanting to please and, that, and how, it, I mean, in general, but then that's also in the work, uh, wanting to please and not wanting to shock and wanting to be on, on best behavior and how limiting that is and how inhibiting that is and how that is just not the way any man 
would have felt. In fact, mm-hmm. in some cases, the very opposite. Uh, I'm going to be in your face. I'm going to shock. Um, so it, for me, it was really important to, to, to have that lesson early and to always keep it in mind when working that it's not, it's not about, I, I, you can't be worried about your image. You know, right. it, it, it's just, and it's so hard not to. I, 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 uh, uh, I remember um, once I was talking to someone uh, uh, who'd had a baby. Um, and this was when we were young. And so I was very curious. I had to ask her certain things. And I don't know exactly what, what it was that I asked her. But she said, oh, when you're giving birth, you don't, you don't really worry about your image, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Like, yeah, just that's not on your mind, right? And I remember thinking, you know, I wonder what I'd asked her to make her answer like that. That it's very funny to me, but it, but I, I think of it when writing. It's just like you're, you don't want to be thinking about your about your image any more than it while you're giving birth. And um, I also like that she maintains, uh, she maintains in that book a hopeful tone. Um. You know, it's. It, it, I think that's really important, and um, the same thing with a room of one's own, which I think comes comes right out of that. That that there, there was something so brilliant about about it coming from, you know, this idea if Shakespeare had a sister. So as everybody knows, these mm-hmm. room of one's own came out of talks that she gave on women in fiction, and so that narrowed it down for me because I was interested in 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 in, in that in particular. Uh, in terms of feminism. And so for me, she, I mean, this is 1929, um, the sort of unapologetic way that she would present that, because to say if Shakespeare had a sister is to say that there could exist a woman of of genius. And um, people didn't believe that. I mean, people did not accept that. Uh, So... um, and in her case, she also maintains a very hopeful tone, and her um, and she has, you know, that book has so much warmth in it, so much humor, so much charm, so much brio. It is such it's a polemic, but it is it's like as as entertaining to me as 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 her her novels. It's just such a delightful book, and I I think something that. Um, you know, and again, and I think this is really important. Um, there's no self pity in it. Mm. There's no self pity in that book, and there's no, um, there's certainly no man trash or man hating. And I do like, uh, um, um, and it's as serious as, as 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 any book could be about its subject, even though it is extremely light in many ways. But I, I'm very taken now by the way she rejects polarization you know that's you know there there is this part where she really is you know trying to emphasize how we are we're not polarized we're all in this together and um and she encourages people to think beyond just the individual self you know mm. she she uh, 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 and 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 the main you know the main um the rest of her argument really is that, again, it, that it's not about you, that, that, that the, writer's, the writer's allegiance uh, is to reality. 
and, and, not, and not to self-expression or to the individual. And I just think that that's a, you know, that, that, that that's a, 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 a something, some, something that, that, that people forget now. I was just thinking it sounds like um, not only did they make you think about feminism differently um, and probably um, uh, particularly if you read them at a sort of young, um, impressionable, and I mean that in the best kind of way, age, but it sounds like they've also um, had quite an influence on your own life as a writer and how you've thought about yourself and your writing and your ego as a writer and, and where it shouldn't be and where it should be and things like that. Exactly. And the, and. The thing is, I guess you know. I seem I seem to remember that uh, that I I had an idea about about uh, feminism that was that was very limited. I mean, it was you know I I I didn't see the big picture. I thought it was um, um, you know that, that there were all these excellent ideas, but I I didn't I didn't see how I didn't see how it how it reached into. Uh, I didn't see how it reached into my life as a writer, you know, mm. really not, 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 not as clearly, you know, all these things that, uh, that Virginia Woolf brings up because she, she goes through the history of women writing and, um, and not writing. And then there's that place where she, she says a woman writing looks back through her mother's, but I had just come from school where almost everyone we read was was male, you know. Mm. So so this was a new thing, and also her talking about a woman's sentence in her right. view. Was, all, all this was was a, you know, was was a was a part of the 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 writer's life, but was specifically about about the woman writer's life, uh, and and the feminist view of it. And and I had not seen any of that. Until I, until well, at least I may, may have had some idea about it, but but there's there's such clarity to the way she presents this. And so you could, you can't argue with her. You read it, you read it, you know that she's right. Hmm. Are they books that you return to since you first read them, um, or did they make such an impact at the time that they're not something you go back to? Um, the second sex, not in particular, uh, but uh, a room of one's own is actually a, a a book that I I have returned to with great pleasure, and I've also taught it. So um, you know, and 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 uh, and students do like it. Yeah, no, I think um, it is one, isn't it, that sort of people keep going back to. Um, and the final question, um, Sigrid, if I may, is can I ask you to tell me, uh, name a woman whom you admire? And this is such well, a tricky one to say, just one. <laughs> but, right, but, um, but I, 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 I didn't think about it. I mean, I it immediately, <laughs> you asked me that, I immediately think of the primatologist Jane Goodall. And, um, you know, so we're, again, we're back to... <laughs> we're back to this is such a (laughs) fast right and this is such a fascinating answer because of it so please yeah tell me more yeah i i i adore her i admire her so much and um i i um but but it's 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 very personal actually because you know i i remember a time when i was uh not that young i was in i was in my late 20s and i was struggling with writing so much and yet another one of those boyfriends that I lost. 
I like these sort of unnamed uh, boyfriends that slip through. <laughs> um, you know, he said something that I that I thought was so. I, I was probably insulted by it at the time, but um, he said, "This trying to be a writer is really making you so unhappy." You know, you're you're in the wrong field. You know, you should, you know, you should you should have done something that you love. You know, you should have. Uh, you should have been like trying to be Jane Goodall or something, you know. Um, and and I, I I I do know what he meant. He also at at that time, you know, I think both Letterman and um, and Johnny Carson on their shows uh, would periodically have this woman, not the same woman, have a woman or a man, somebody come on with an animal and do a little segment about the the animal. That was always a part of those shows. And um, my friend said that that's that should be you. you. That would have made you. And he was absolutely right that 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 would have made me very happy because I really do feel that a great lack in my life has been uh, that I should have spent more time with animals. It would have made me happier to have more animals in my life. That that that's absolutely true. So uh, so I think of her. I could never have done what she did in a million years. But that's what's so nice about it, because she I don't have to. <laughs> She's doing it. Um, but first of all, that it began with reading with her, you know, just like just like the rest of us, a little girl and your books and and uh, and how happy you are as a child reading. I mean, that's true of everyone I know. I'm sure it was true. Okay. of you. So she's reading these books and she develops this dream. Uh, I love animals. I want to I want to go to Africa and uh and study animals just a dream and then she ends up she's like 26 27 years old and this opportunity comes comes up for her to go to uh tanzania and uh to the gombe preserve there and observe the the chimpanzees um and, and she does it she, she didn't even have a college degree at the time she had no um you know, she, she had no tools besides, besides, you know, her pencil and her nose. She, she hadn't studied animal behavior. Um, so okay. she, she goes there, she goes there and then um, she's there uh, trying to do this job and, and the, they won't, the, the chimpanzees will not cooperate. So she has to, she has to have all this uh, patience and perseverance to, to, to sit there and wait and wait and wait. And she does, and eventually they accepted her and she was able to make these observations that no one else had ever made before about them using tools, about uh, chimpanzee warfare, um, about things that they ate that people always believed they didn't eat. And then, you know, she became, she became this, this, this famous primatologist and she, this relates to something we were saying uh, before, she is somebody who uh, insisted on giving names to the chimpanzees for which she was criticized. Um, you should give them numbers, not mm. names. That's the way it's done. Because of uh, anthropomorphism, which is, of course, frowned upon in the scientific community. And she uh, stuck to her guns about that, too, um, believing uh, that you had to, you had to, that if you, you had to do a certain amount of that in order to observe them truly. Besides, she would, couldn't have helped herself. It is the way she saw them. They have personalities. 
And then through all this, she did. She she had a marriage. She had a son. Um, and after uh, you know, after years of, of being an extremely important dermatologist, she then you know became a, a conservation activist, which is what she still does. And uh, you know, there's a very famous quote where she says, "The least I can do is speak out for those who can't speak." for themselves. Mm-hmm. So decades go on. She does this work. She does all this wonderful work. And um, I don't know, one of the last things I saw about her uh, in a documentary, uh, you know, she, 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 she does not give up hope. She's, a, she's another one. She's, she's able to hold on to, uh, she insists that there is hope and she sees it in, in, in younger people. And I, I, I thought that was wow. quite lovely. So, so I feel, so I've just, I've always admired her. I've, I, you know, anytime there is a documentary or anything, I will always watch it. And I'm fascinated to watch her, to watch her behave with these chimps. And I also thought it was so wonderful that she explained once um, when she had her son, that she learned from a mother chimp named Flo you know, she she learned things about about being a mother from from Flo. I mean, you can imagine the hilarity. How in fascinating! Some Absolutely fascinating. And you you can imagine how certain people who feel another way about about animals would would respond to that. Um, yeah. So, but certainly, also from a from a, a feminist point of view, this uh, I mean, this woman was was remarkable. I mean, absolutely heroic um, that she could do something like this, and then a completely male-dominated world. Uh, yes, and she, she, uh, and she, you know, made, made a heroic uh, life out of out of that. So, um, so, but I, so I like to think of her, and I, it, 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 I guess other people have this idea of there's someone out there living the life that I, you know, living it a life for me that I could only dream about in, in all aspects, you know, I never got married. I never had a child. And she, she, you know, I, I didn't get to study the chimps. I didn't get to have this close relationship. Um, you know, I'm not doing much to save the planet at the moment. She's doing all these things for me as, as my kind of ideal. I love that. I love the idea of, yeah, somebody else living the sort of other life that you could have had. But, you know, I must say that as a reader of your work, I'm very pleased that you chose the life that you did. Um, Not least because I think also a a life without animals for you has made you a particularly keen um, uh, sort of chronicler of them in your fiction as well. So that's brought me much enjoyment. Um, So thank you for that, Sigrid. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Sigrid Nunez. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture.